0: If you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16? 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And so we have finally come to the last chapter. I've broken it up as you can see in the bulletin. Uh I want to consider Paul's advice and Paul's plans, his travel plans. And then, Lord willing, next week we shall take verse 13, verse 14 and verse 22 through 24 to conclude 1 Corinthians. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and beginning to read in verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes... See that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity." Now, down to verse 15. Now, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit As well as yours, give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, or Priscilla, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And may the Lord bless to us the reading of His Word. Let us pray. Now, Father, as we ourselves find ourselves in your presence, having sung these glorious hymns of truth, lifting up your holiness, your power, the grandeur of your character, and reminding ourselves of how faithful you are to your people, we come now to the preaching of your word and ask that God, the Holy Spirit, would supply all that is needed to convey the meaning of this passage before us, that we might understand it, that we might find it fruitful and beneficial to us, that we might learn from it and so grow in grace and in the knowledge and the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we commend ourselves to you now and ask your rich blessing upon the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, in this last chapter, this closing chapter that we find ourselves in here, in 1 Corinthians, chapter 16, there's no question the Apostle Paul has some uh, very practical advice to give to the Corinthians, the believers at the church at Corinth. Throughout this epistle, he has been very concerned for them. He's worried about them. They have many troubles, many trials, many sins that they are working through and so on. And so as he comes to the end here, there's just one final major thing that he wants to leave with them before he communicates to them his travel plans. And you can see from the passage that the apostle intends much travel, uh, including coming back to Corinth and seeing how these Christians are doing. And he wants to do that because, of course, uh, of all the things that we have read about and that we have learned about in chapter 16. We fortunately have 2 Corinthians to open the door to much of the things that took place uh, between Paul's writing and his visit and then, of course, uh, his going back again. Now, let me remind you of some things here. It's very important that we remember every time the Apostle Paul uses the words now concerning. So if you look at verse 1, you'll find it, and verse 12, you'll find it. Now concerning, when you read those words, when you see those words, that means that the Apostle Paul is responding to some query from the Corinthians, or some question that somebody has raised and is now asking the Apostle. So every time you see that in the epistle, you find or will know that somebody has asked him a question. So for example... You find it twice in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, verse 25, where the questions about marriage and betrothal and the obligations of that are found. Somebody has written to Paul, and they have asked him questions about marriage and so on, now concerning the matters about which you wrote 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1. So Paul deals with the subject of marriage in that chapter 7. You find it, in the first opening verses of chapter 8, where the subject is all about food that is offered to idols. So the Corinthians have questions about, is it right for me to go to the temple and eat food that is sacrificed to idols? So a question or a query has been raised on the subject of idolatrous sacrifices. Can I eat the food that has been offered to them? come to chapter 12 verse 1 you find exactly the same words now concerning spiritual gifts and so somebody has queries about what are the spiritual gifts and what does it mean for a congregation and so the apostle paul outlines for us in 1 corinthians chapter 12 that great subject of spiritual gifts here you see it in verse 1 as i said and verse 12 So notice in verse 1, the query obviously has to do with the collection for the saints whom we are told are in Jerusalem. So somebody has raised a a question about the the collection, there's a query about it, and the Apostle Paul wants to clarify certain things about making that collection. You see it also in verse 12, where it concerns the travel plans of Apollos. And so the Apostle wants to let them know, Uh, what Apollos was thinking about coming back to Corinth. So these questions have been raised and Paul is in his fashion going to deal with them and so he provides uh, in response to verse 1, verse 12 and all in between, he provides his answers, his instructions and he gives his advice, gives his advice very particularly about the collection for the saints and then he just goes into these uh, nitty-gritty details about his travel plans. I don't want you to lose sight of the fact this morning that whenever you read or come to the end of an epistle, sometimes you read about the greetings. Uh, The greetings to me are a lot like the genealogies in the Old Testament. They're important. Don't neglect them. And we should not neglect the greetings when you read them. Don't pass over them because they are set within a context. And that context is vital to the life and the ministry and the understanding of this great apostle Paul. So these questions that have been raised, Paul is going to do a number of things. He's going to provide instruction, number one, and he's going to reveal intention, number two. So he's going to, he's going to talk about what they should do, and he's going to talk about what he's going to do, what's expected, and he weaves together, he blends together these two things, his instructions and his intentions. So, for example, if you look at verse 1, here's his instruction. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So, verse 1 gives us the instruction. I gave an instruction to Galatia, and in the same way, I'm giving it to you. And verse 2 continues, doesn't it, with what they must do. So he says in verse 2, on the first day of the week, and each of you is to do what he tells them to do. But notice verse 3 and verse 4, he turns from those direct instructions about this collection to the saints in Jerusalem, he gives his intentions. And his intentions are, that when I arrive, I will send those. So here's what he intends to happen. I will send those you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. His intention also, verse 4, if it seems advisable that I should go, then they whom you've determined to send will go with me. So he's doing this uh, throughout this section. He's giving certain instructions and then he gives and blends his intentions with them. Now, this is an important passage, the opening four verses on the collection for the saints in the city of Jerusalem. What is this collection? What is it all about? Well, what is the word collection is simply the receiving of some monetary gifts that are made voluntarily. So, this is about money. This is about the collection of money. And you'll notice in verse 3 that the apostle talks uh, about your gift. So it's a gift from the church at Corinth for the Christians in Jerusalem. And it's the receiving of money given voluntarily, meaning it's not given by compulsion. Now you know the Apostle Paul was the master of being able to tell you to do something without seeming to come across as having told you to do something. And that's exactly what he does here. He just just lays before them their obligations the requirements that they ought to feel for themselves. And he feels so confident that they will do what he says that he even seems to indicate that when I come, if you want me to go to Jerusalem, then I'll go to Jerusalem taking the gift with me as well. So this collection then is a very significant thing because many times we have, you know, ladies might get together and have a, 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 a collection for missionaries. Oh, we, we do it for, for the children uh, at the end of the year, right? We've been collecting now, month of January, month of February, we gather together certain items and we send those at the end of the year to all these children. And societies, missionary gatherings do this all the time. But this is not a collection of blankets. This is not a collection of shoes. This is not a collection of food products, And, may I dare say, this is not even a collection of the copies of Paul's New Testament letters. How profitable that would have been. But that's not the collection that Paul is engaged in asking the Corinthians for here. No, this is to be a monetary gift, a collection of money. And it's not just any collection of money, but specifically, if you look at verse 1, he says in verse 1, Concerning the collection for the saints, and then if you look at verse 3, it gives the destination. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So now we know this is a, this is a gift, a collection, money, for the saints and the saints in Jerusalem. That's what this collection is about. So this is a gift. This is a monetary gift Uh, You might call it a benevolent offering that's taken up, uh, that is given for believers. And notice the phrase, don't miss the phrase, the saints. Whenever you read about the saints in the Bible, that's just simply a word that refers to God's holy ones, those who are set apart unto God. So he means believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. He means Christians that are in Jerusalem. And what Paul wants to tell them is that this gift, this monetary gift that is to be made voluntarily, has to be prepared for, and then has to be collected. So that when he comes, it's not as though he's going to be caught by surprise and they've done nothing. No, Paul's intention is to give them forewarning to prepare the gift, set it aside, so that when he does come, they are able to then forward and send it on to the saints at Jerusalem. Now, he's already done the same thing, he says, to the churches at Galatia. And the churches at Galatia, those churches that we find on the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, he has given them similar instructions for the collection for the saints at Jerusalem. So just as I told the churches of Galatia, so too, Paul says, I'm telling you here in Corinth for the, churches, uh, the church in Jerusalem. So we know from this writing of the Apostle Paul, that the Galatians themselves were already engaged in taking up this collection so that the Apostle Paul, in all of his travels, might be able to gather these funds together and then have them delivered to Jerusalem. Now having said that, he tells them how to go about it. Uh, There's there's a plan. And notice his plan. You look at verse 2. How do you go about gathering this collection. He tells them three things. Number one, when to gather it. Number two, what to gather. And number three, why they should gather it. So look first of all, uh, (coughs) first of all at the when. When should they gather this? He says on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week. What should they do on the first day of the week? Look at verse (coughs) 1. And two, he says, sorry, verse two, on the first day of the week, what should you do? Each of you should put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Why should you do that, Paul says. Look at verse, the verse, so that when I come, it's as if, he's saying, when I come, I don't have to take up, or we don't have to take up this collection on sudden notice. So that there will be no collecting when I come, he says. Now what does he mean by the first day of the week? What is the first day of the week? Yes, it's today, the first day of the week. Did you know that every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in describing the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is very pointed and very particular to make out that the f- Jesus rose on the first day day of the week and so having told us that the gospels and so on we have come to or the world as we know it refers to this day as sunday but every christian should refer to this day every believer as the lord's day this is the lord's day for us this is not just sunday like another day monday tuesday wednesday that the world looks at but we look at this wor- this day differently This is not just any ordinary day because the Scriptures tell us this is the Lord's day and the Lord's day is vitally connected, the Scriptures teach us, to the first day. So what is Paul revealing to Corinth? It's obvious that he has told the Galatians a similar thing, that on the first day of the week, obviously when they come together as a church when they gather together whether you're Corinthian Ephesian Thessalonian Philippian what Philippian whatever it is Roman whatever you are wherever you find yourself Paul is revealing to the Galatians to the Corinthians that on the first day of the week this is what they must do so when they meet together on this day For worship, this is not just a meeting for the collection, but on the day when they gather together, the first day of the week on the Lord's Day, that then they should take up this collection every first day of the week. And the Lord's Day, of course, as I said, is this very significant day because it is the day of resurrection, the day of new life, a new day for worship. And it's so significant for the Christian church to grasp this distinction between the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, and the Old Testament Sabbath, which is the seventh day. And there's no question in the New Testament that the first day has eclipsed in importance, in significance, the seventh day. And the first day, of course, without question, involves, because of the moral law of God found in creation, the Sabbath rest of God himself, that the first day involves, yes, this principle of Sabbath, which is simply the principle of rest. And it is replacing, there's no question, the Christian church has significantly, correctly, no doubt about it, replaced the seventh day with the first day. Because the Sabbath ultimately is about setting aside a day, a day in principle for the worship of God, and it's not just the day, seventh day, sixth day, whatever, but it is that principle that is found within that we are to engage in on that day. Moreover, the obligation for the christian on the first day is because we know from the scriptures without exception in the epistle to the hebrews and so on that there was the demolition of the old covenant ultimately by the destruction of the city of jerusalem in a.d 70 no more temple no more sacrifices no more priests no levitical system ever again because jesus is the fulfillment of the shadows and the copy, So Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is the reality of a shadow, and that was what we find in the Old Covenant. So Jesus himself, as the mediator of the New Covenant, inaugurates this New Covenant, which completely obliterates and takes away any necessity for the laws of Israel as we find them in the Old Testament. I love the New Covenant, don't you? Because Jesus is at the heart of the new covenant. The the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, is shadowed and prefixed and typed in the old covenant. But the reality and the substance of what it means to be in Christ, union with Christ, is because of this new covenant relationships. There's no question then that from Paul's perspective, Christians are gathering on the first day. They are gathering on the Lord's day, as we find it in Scripture. Do you remember when he came to the city of Troas with Luke on his missionary journey, that they stayed there for seven days, and the text says that on the first day, when we gathered together to break bread, when we gathered to do that which is obligated upon us in the institution of the Lord's Supper, Paul says, we did that, we looked for that, only, of course, on the first day. So it is the practice of Christians, has been for centuries, it is the principle of Scripture that the first day is important for us because Jesus rose from the dead, has brought in Himself and new life. And we find the Apostle John, don't we, on the island of Patmos, that on the Lord's Day I was in the Spirit. I was worshipping God. Revelation 1 verse 10. So, When Paul looks at Galatia, and when he looks at Corinth, he sees churches. There is the bride of Christ. There is a New Testament church. And as they are incorporated, and as they are gathered together, on the first day of the week, Paul says, this is what you have to do. You take up this collection, and that's what he's telling the Corinthians. Now, I want you to notice some things that are important for us as Christians, this morning, about giving, which we have done this morning for ourselves. Uh, some Christians take this passage as the passage that means that every church must take up an offering because this is what Paul does here. Now there's truth to that. There is a connection that we ought to do that. But we all understand that we ought to be giving to God, not only of ourselves, but of that which God has blessed us with. Not only that, but this is the perfect occasion on every Lord's Day to give unto the Lord that which we want to give to Him. Why? Because it's necessary to bring about the function, the building, the lights, and so on. All of those things are sustained by God's people. And so this is what we do. But Paul tells the Corinthians two things about this offering that I want you to notice. First of all, it is private. It is private or personal. Look what he says. Each, Verse uh, verse 2. Each of you is to put something aside. And store it up. You remember what the Lord Jesus said, right, in Matthew chapter 6? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you give, give in secret, right? And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So let your giving, Matthew Gospel, Jesus says, be in secret. So, each of you, whatever you have, Paul says, you are to put something aside and store it up. It's private. It's each of you, notice. Secondly, he says, it is as you prosper, or to put it simply, as God has blessed you. As God has blessed you. Now, you know, some people are on fixed incomes, They get paid on one day of the month, or some people are twice in a month. Some people are paid week to week. Some people are paid day by day, right? There are many people who live hand to mouth and day by day. First century, it was no different. Probably, they got paid as they engaged daily in business and as they sought to live and keep alive. Now, I want you to notice Paul does not tell the Corinthians how much they are to give. This is an important principle, dear congregation, because it is a private determination. You get to decide. You decide. Each of you, he says, as the Lord has prospered you. In other words, there is no 10% stipulation here or more. Let's not forget that Israel's obligation to God in offerings and gifts was not just 10%, but might have been as close to 23% of what they were required to give to God. There is no stipulation in the New Testament anywhere of how much you must give. Now many Christians operate on 10%. If you wish to do that, that's fine. If that's your determination, that's fine. But you can't force that on somebody else, because the New Testament doesn't say anywhere that you are obligated to give 10%. So it's not the teaching of the New Testament that you should give 10%. Nor is it the teaching of the New Testament that you give tithes. There's no mention of tithes for the New Testament church in the New Testament at all. So, what does Paul say about this giving? I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1 through verse 7. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 7. Now bear in mind, this is after the first letter, okay? This is the second letter, so this is subsequent events. Now it is superfluous, verse 1, for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. So what we're reading about in 1 Corinthians 16, now Paul says, in 2 Corinthians they've been ready for a year. They've done it. okay. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers, so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it, Necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So notice verse 7 there in 2 Corinthians 9. Number one, you give as you decide in your heart. This is a private matter. It's in your heart you have made this determination. You give as you decide. Secondly, he says you give willingly. So you don't give reluctantly. You don't give under compulsion. But you give willingly, he says. And his third reason is because God loves a cheerful giver. God loves someone who gives willingly, joyfully, cheerfully. So you can see here that there are two things that we have at hand. First of all, the giving that the Corinthians are to engage in was a personal, private determination. Each one of you is to set aside something. It's not stipulated by Paul, but... You are to give as God has decided, sorry, as you have determined, as God has blessed you, as God has prospered. And in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 9, there is this idea of privacy and there is this idea of prospering because he says, You give as you decide, you give willingly, and God loves it when you give cheerfully and joyfully. So, there are some principles for us to learn here. The biggest principle you can ever learn about giving is simply, it is never about how much you give. Ever. It is never about how much you give, but how you give. Willingly, not reluctantly, cheerfully, joyfully, thankfully, whatever you like to throw there. It's not about, I gave this much to God. Because what God wants is from your heart and a cheerful giving and a willing giving of it. So it's never how much you give, but how you give. And of course, offerings vary. They vary in size, uh, simply because each of you, each of us, should determine what we must give. Now Paul, he wants the Corinthians to follow this advice, so that when he comes... He won't find it necessary to use some kind of force to drag this collection out of them. So he's giving them an advance warning. He's very good at giving advance warnings, the Apostle Paul. He does it in the epistle to Philemon, doesn't he? He tells Philemon all these things about about what he expects from Philemon because you want to do it unto the Lord and for the glory of God and so on. So he, he, he couches our obligations under the big umbrella of our obligation to God. And that's what he's doing with the Corinthians here. So he wants them to follow his his advice so that when he comes, he doesn't have to force them to make this or to fulfill their promise that they have already promised that they're going to take up this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And he does that. Notice verse 3 and 4. He promises his own support. He says, I'm with you in this. So he says in verse 3, when I arrive... I will send those whom you approve of, you accredit, by letter. So um, will, will, the church will either write a letter or I'll write a letter, but we will send them, whoever you decide, by letter, to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems necessary or advisable that I go, he says, I'm prepared even to do that. I'm prepared to go with whomever you decide you should send And so he's promising his support. So you must send a delegation. You must send it with letters about what it is. And Paul says, I'm even prepared to accompany them if that's the case. Now why does he do that? Because it suggests to us security and travel. And it suggests to us protection from corruption and abuse. You remember the money bag used to be in the hands of Judas Iscariot. And the Bible says he liked to help himself to what was in the bag. It's a great temptation when you have a lot of money and you're traveling with it, perhaps to engage in using it for your own ends. Paul says, we're going to prevent that. We'll travel with brothers, we'll travel with letters. They might even have stipulated the amount that was coming to Jerusalem, so there'd be no problem when it arrived in Jerusalem. And he even if you look at verse 6, sorry, verse 5, uh, he connects his future travel plans with that, Collection, doesn't he? He says, I'm going to visit you after passing through Macedonia, because I'm intending to do that. And in verse 6, he even anticipates that the Corinthians would provide him with some support at the end, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. So far, so good. But the real question is, why? Must you take up a collection for Jerusalem? That's the, the, collection, the, 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 the question. Why are you making this collection for the saints, for the church, <coughs> for the Christians in Jerusalem? Well, the answer is found in Romans chapter 15. So let us turn to Romans chapter 15, verse 22. Romans chapter 15 and verse 22 through verse 28. <coughs> Romans 15 Verse 22. Paul says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. That's the Romans. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. So these are his travel plans, right? And to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while... At present, verse 25, However, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia, that's, by the way, the Philippian church, the Thessalonians, right? The province of Macedonia. The Macedonians and the K.I., that's the Corinthians, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them, For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this, have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So, verse 25 says, Bringing aid to the saints, I'm going to Jerusalem, Romans 15, 25. I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, And in verse 26, Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So he tells us the saints in Jerusalem were experiencing poverty. They were poor, they had nothing. You know, remember back in Acts chapter 11, when Paul and Barnabas were in the church at Antioch, the church in Jerusalem was suffering because Agabus had foretold about the great famine that would come in the days of Claudius the emperor. And they were experiencing that famine. So Paul and Barnabas from the church in Antioch went to Jerusalem bringing some relief for the saints in Jerusalem. Once again it would appear that these Jerusalem Christians are experiencing hardship and difficulties. And the Romans 15 points out and confirms that Macedonia and the Corinthians, Achaia, chapter 15, verse 26, had already made their collection and Paul was with it and traveling to take it to Jerusalem. So when you come back to chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians, in verses 5 through 12 Paul does exactly what he told the Romans in chapter 15. He unfolds his travel plans. So look at verse 5. Let's go through these quickly. In verse 5 he plans to come to Corinth. Why does he plan to come to Corinth? so that he can do verse 3 and 4. Right? He can ensure that the collection is ready and that it, it goes to Jerusalem. So he plans to come to Corinth so that he can do that. But first of all, he's going to go to Macedonia. Verse 6. He hopes to stay with the Corinthians for a while so that they can support him in his travels, uh, su- supply some monetary support, whatever it is for Paul as well. He's already told the Romans about their obligation to him to do that. In verse 7, the reason why he doesn't come at the present moment is because he sees that the visit would be too short and he hopes to spend more time with them. So you can see how Paul's thinking. When I get to Corinth, I want to be able to stay there. I want to spend some time with them. I don't want the visit to be too short. And the Apostle Paul, like all good Christians, says he'll only do this if the Lord permits, if the Lord wills. Paul makes his plans. That, by the way, is how we should all plan our own lives. If you're traveling to some destination, you plan to get there, you plan to go there, if the Lord wills, and only if the Lord wills. You plan to go to your business on Monday morning, if the Lord wills. You see, what Paul does is he lives his life within the framework of the willingness of God overlooking his life, leading him and guiding him. It's not just a one-time recollection oh, I should do this in the will of God. No, he lives his entire life under the will and in the will of God and he always credits God with that. I will only do this if the Lord wills. In the meantime, look at verse 8. I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Pentecost, the fact that he states Pentecost there, Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. So somewhere between Passover and staying here until Pentecost, perhaps Paul is within that time frame, we don't know exactly, but he's going to stay at least until Pentecost. And he says, notice verse 9, the reasons for staying in Ephesus, he says, number one, there's a wide open door for work. So the first thing you notice is that there are many opportunities, Paul says, in Ephesus. There are still many things to be done in Ephesus. So I have a wide open door for ministry. Many opportunities. But look what he says. Secondly, he says that there are many adversaries. So, which, and many adversaries, by the way, just simply provides Paul with the opportunity of withstanding them. You know, having adversaries is a good thing. Something must be right If you have many adversaries against you, like the Apostle Paul did. He had adversaries from Judaism, the Jewish enemies, and he had Gentile adversaries. And they caused him a lot of heartache and a lot of pain. But he says here, I'm going to stay at Ephesus because there are many adversaries there. It gives me the opportunity to serve Christ, to share the gospel even with the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. So something must be right to have many opportunities and many adversaries. So, Paul tells them in verse 10, in the meantime also, I've sent Timothy to you. So Paul remains in Ephesus, verse 10, when Timothy comes, you see that phrase? When Timothy comes, he's already on his way, it would appear. He's coming to them, he's traveling from Macedonia, probably when he comes down to them and he's soon expected to arrive in Corinth. And Paul says to the Corinthians, now when Timothy comes, you make sure that you help him, because he and I are doing the same work. So you look after him, he says. Notice verse 11. Don't despise him, because he's a young man. Help him on his way, so that he can return to me. Alright? So notice verse 11. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he might come back to me, that he might return to me, because I'm expecting him with the brothers. Paul's looking for some report, isn't he? Sends Timothy. Timothy's going to bring back a report. And we know that Timothy did go back to Paul because 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 opens with Paul and Timothy writing the letter back to the Corinthians the second time. So he was with Paul when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians. And the brothers, notice verse 11, I'm expecting him with the brothers, are simply those who travel with Timothy. Timothy, And in verse 12, he goes on to talk now about Apollos, now concerning our brother Apollos. Corinthians wanted to know about Apollos, verse 12. It's important to remember, of course, that the Corinthians valued Apollos. You remember that uh, there were those factions that Paul rebukes them for in chapter 1 of those who said, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. But the Apostle Paul, he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 3, sorry, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. And what Paul wants to reveal here by talking about Apollos is to show the Corinthians that there's no division, And there's no jealousy on Paul's part between him and Apollos. He's quite prepared to revel in the work of of this man, Apollos, who was a great preacher and a great teacher, and he's prepared to tell the Corinthians there's nothing between us, just so that the Corinthians would learn from the relationship between Paul and and Apollos that they shouldn't divide themselves or have factions. I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos. Paul says... To show that, I st- look at verse 12, I strongly urged him to visit with others. But Apollos, he didn't feel it was the right time to do that. But he did say that when he was able, he would make the visit. So Paul told to- Apollos, the Corinthians wanted to see you. Apollos said, it's not, I'm not happy about going right at the moment, but I will go when the opportunity presents itself. Now having said all that, dear congregation, you know, there's one thing that stands out for me at least in reading 1 Corinthians is that the Apostle Paul knew all about the problems in Corinth. He knew everything that was taking place in Corinth as we find, as we have read through 1 Corinthians. He knew about their quarrels, right? He knew about their divisions in chapter 1. He knew about their love for human wisdom like the Greeks elevated philosophy and so on. He knew all about that. In fact... In, first, in chapter 1, verse 11, he says that Chloe's people have actually reported to him, and that might have been either by letter or by word of mouth, but they have told him certain things. So it's almost as if Paul's got people in the church at Corinth who are letting him know about what was happening in Corinth. And he says, you remember in chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. So there's a report out there, Paul knows about it, just as he knows about their quarreling and their factions from chapter 1. He knows about the immoral things that were taking place in Corinth. He also knows that they have queries about marriage, because they wrote him a letter in chapter 7 and verse 1. And that brings us then to verse 15, now in chapter 16 through verse 18. It appears from these verses, 15 and onwards, that Paul has been visited by three individuals, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus in verse 17. They are probably the ones who brought the letter of chapter 7 to the Apostle Paul. So they've probably delivered the letter to them. These three individuals, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, they may have been family relatives, related to each other. The Bible doesn't tell us. But verse 15 tells us, I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. Now, Achaia, by the way, involves Greece and Corinth. Important to remember that. Paul spent some time in Greece. Remember, he was up Mars Hill, and then from Greece, there were a few believers that came out of that experience. He went on to the city of Corinth where he was for at least 18 months preaching the gospel. So these, the household of Stephanus, whoever they were, may have been, Fortunatus and Achaicus as well, they were among the first converts, the first believers in Achaia. In fact, in chapter 1, Paul says, I baptized the household of Stephanus." So they believed the gospel, and they were baptized by the apostle Paul. And so from verse 15 and verse 16, they probably were leaders in the church, because look at verse 15, they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And verse 16, Paul says, you should be subject to these, as you ought to be to every fellow worker and laborer who works for Christ. And verse 18, he says, they've refreshed me, with their presence they were a blessing to me and as a result you should recognize people who are a spiritual blessing to me and of course that's a principle I think that applies to all of us you recognize those from whom you benefit spiritually now this is why I said to you what can you learn from these kinds of things well, let's just start with the greetings, because that's how Paul ends 1 Corinthians, like he ends most of his epistles. So notice, first of all, verse 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Well, who are the churches of Asia? Well, that's Ephesus, Colossae, Laodicea, Herapolis. These churches that are mentioned together, that's the churches of Asia. So they send you greetings. Then he says, secondly, verse 19, Aquila and Prisca, or Priscilla, who, by the way, are well known to the Corinthians, right? Because they were in Corinth when Paul arrived there. And remember, being of the same trade, they were tent makers by trade, chapter 18, verse 1 or 2 of Acts, uh, the book of Acts, They were well known to the Corinthians and Paul stayed with them and of course they uh, were involved in the church at Corinth. When Paul left Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla went with him as far as Ephesus. They stayed in Ephesus and Paul made his travels on back to Antioch. And of course now he says, because he himself is in Ephesus, I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost. He says, Aquila and Priscilla, churches of Asia, They, together with the church in their house, they send you hearty greetings in the Lord. The church in their house. So notice all these churches, the churches of Asia. Not just one church, but many churches. The the church that meets in the home of Priscilla and Aquila, and they themselves sending greetings to the saints in Corinth. And then notice verse 20, general greetings, right? All the brothers... Wherever I am, Paul says, they send you greetings. And then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. What is this holy kiss? Because I don't see much of that happening here. It's just a greeting of affection, isn't it? Now, the ancient world, they hugged each other and gave a kiss on the cheek. We are much more reserved, I suppose, for many reasons uh, in our day. But it really conveys the idea of close connection, Fellowship and affection, and isn't that what should demonstrate who the saints of God are? That Jesus, in, uh, that the, the Scriptures tell us that you will know that they are disciples by their love, by their affection for each other. What is the one distinguishing feature of a Christian? It is that they love one another. Isn't that the entire Epistle of First John? It's all about loving your brother. In fact, you really only prove that you love God if you have love for your brothers and your sisters. So this is what Paul's saying. He says here, all the brothers greet you. So greet one another with a holy kiss. Let your affection be known. And then he says, verse 21, I, Paul, I even write this greeting with my own hand. So dear congregation, what can you learn this morning from Paul's advice and from Paul's plans? First of all, Paul is always the teacher. Wherever he is, you find him guiding, helping, teaching, instructing, training, explaining to Christians how they are to be Christians. Ultimately, the Apostle Paul brings everything down to union with Jesus Christ. That the reason we can be said to be Christians is because we're no longer in Adam, but we are in Jesus Christ. And because we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, he says, this is how you live. This is what you do. So he gives simple instructions about making a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Because that's what he does. Because he's a teacher. He's concerned about how they live in the sight of God. So he communicates the truth, number one. And he corrects errors, number two. And all of his communication and all of his correction is under the authority of Christ and according to the word of God, so that all of our correcting, all of our communication, must always be of the truth, and according to the truth, so that whether it's by rebuke, or by exhortation or by by comfort, whatever it is, it's always according to Jesus, and his truth. That's the first thing. The second thing you can say is, you know, Paul really loves Christ's people. Now there was a day when Saul of Tarsus hated the people of God. He tried to torture them and make them blaspheme the name of Jesus. He forced them to do those kinds of things. He was a bad, evil man. And Jesus met him. And Jesus saved him. Now, this man who used to be filled with such antagonism for Christ and for His people, is so loving of Jesus Christ that He loves God's people with everything that He is. He cares for them. He's concerned for them. You remember how He talks about all of His sufferings in 2 Corinthians. Besides this, He says, daily, I have anxiety for the churches. Daily, every church out there, I I worry about. I'm concerned for them. He has deep love. They're always on His heart and He would help anyone. Secondly, Paul himself is not afraid to share himself and even his difficulties and even his hardships. He's prepared to bear abuse. He's prepared to put up with rejection for the sake of Jesus and for the church of Christ. He shows himself. He reveals his heart to the people of God. But you know the big thing about Paul is he always puts God first. Always puts God first. It's said of Martin Lloyd-Jones that his preaching was always about God. It was God-centered. Yes, others might preach about Jesus. Others might preach about many other things. But Lloyd-Jones, the one thing you took away from his preaching was it always seemed to focus and center on God. The holiness of God. The reverence that we ought to have for God. That's the Apostle Paul. He thinks of Jesus just like that. Jesus is God. Jesus is his Lord. The church belongs to Jesus, not to the Apostle Paul. So he's prepared to put God first, Christ first, in his life, in everything, so that God gets all the praise and all the glory. So here's the life of this man, just revealed in some of the things he says, about how he feels for this church. A church that he spent a lot of time building, planting. He was there at the beginning. When the gospel came, God told him to stay in Corinth. I have many people in the city who are called by my name. You stay there. You preach. Don't be afraid. Go on testifying. And that's what he did. And the Corinthian church is the result of that. Here's a man's life given entirely to Christ. Is your life, is my life like that given entirely to Jesus Christ? Let me leave you with two things. might be helpful. Like Paul, number one, we must be willing to sacrifice and to share our lives. That costs money, that costs time, that costs effort. Are you willing to sacrifice and share your life? You remember how Jesus, when he walked around Galilee and Judea, he saw the crowds. They were like sheep, he says what? Without a shepherd. They were harassed. They were troubled. They were were worrying about so many things. The Lord Jesus Christ comes among them and He helps them and He heals them. He's willing to share Himself with them no matter the cost. Even the disciples say, look, Lord, the day is at an end. Send these people away. Let them find food and villages where they can sleep the night. They're starting to get a little agitated. What does Jesus say? You give them something to eat. How can we feed them? It's more than 5,000 here. No problem to Jesus to share, to give, to sacrifice himself, which culminates in the ultimate sacrifice of the cross. That's what Jesus is prepared to do for you and for me, to sacrifice himself. So I must be willing as a Christian to do exactly the same. Isn't that what Paul's telling the Corinthians? You take up this collection for the Jerusalem saints because they need it. And they're poor. And yes, it is a sacrifice and it is going to cost you. But you can determine what you can do. And God has blessed you enough to do it. So share and sacrifice. That's the first thing. Second thing is, be willing to serve. And the hardest thing of all is to be a servant. Did you know that? Because the one thing that's required of a servant is faithfulness. Or you might serve today, Sunday. But what about next week? What about tomorrow and every single day of your life? Is your life given over to service for Jesus Christ? Because Jesus gave his life in service for you. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's what motivates Paul, right? That's what sends him out as an apostle of Jesus Christ to fulfill his commission because he's burdened with Christ and the love that Christ has for him. Let the love of Christ control everything that we do. Be motivated by the love of God and the love of Jesus. Be willing to sacrifice, be willing to share, be willing to serve and God will prosper and bless us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given to us this morning. Just in this closing chapter of 1 Corinthians, such important little details from the hand of the Apostle Paul that are so important and so relevant to us to understand the man and his life, that we might understand what we as a church should be like. So help us, we pray, to always be affectionate towards one another to always be willing to share our lives and serve one another and sacrifice our lives for the believers, let alone for, the, for our enemies and the world, but let us love one another and so demonstrate to the world that we are Christians by our love. So we ask that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand these things and fill us with himself, that we might be different, we might be changed. So we praise you and thank you for these things now ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now will you take your black hymnals again. And let's turn to number 388. He will hold me fast. We'll sing all the verses. Let's stand together. 388.